0: It's been more than 72 hours since the, quote, second phase of Israel's war in Gaza began, and the ground offensive is intensifying. Thousands of people in Gaza are dead. On Tuesday, Israel claimed responsibility for an attack that killed and injured hundreds of people in a Gaza refugee camp. Israel says it was targeting a senior Hamas commander. Around the world, scores of people have been protesting the war. But all this time, there's been one ally offering unwavering support to Israel — the U.S. government. Missy Ryan covers national security for The Post. And recently, she was thinking about one telling moment in the wake of the Hamas attacks.
1: Biden came out in the days following the Hamas attacks and made this very unusual Oval Office address only the second time during his presidency that he's done this evening address from the Oval Office. Good evening, my fellow Americans. We're facing an inflection point in history. One of those moments where the decisions we make today are going to determine the future for decades to come. He basically made the case for continued, strong U.S. support, not only for Israel as it responded to these attacks, but also for Ukraine as it confronts continued conflict with Russia. You know, the assault on Israel echoes nearly 20 months of war, tragedy, and brutality inflicted on the people of Ukraine
0: Missy has been tracking the Biden administration's direct support to Israel since the massacre and kidnapping of Israelis by Hamas. She's especially been looking at the military support from the U.S.
1: Since the October 7th attacks by Hamas into Israel, the United States has rushed to provide an array of different kinds of munitions and weapons to the Israeli government, including small-diameter bombs, including interceptors for Israeli air defense systems, and the United States has sent out a number of different military assets to the region to support Israel without getting directly involved in the fight, including two aircraft carrier groups, which is a huge number of forces that are stationed in the eastern Mediterranean off of Israel.
0: And as it has for decades, America is offering support to Israel in the form of security aid.
1: I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. is a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Lillian Cunningham. It's Wednesday, November 1st. There are still a lot of questions about more aid to Israel right now. But for decades, Israel has been the number one recipient of U.S. foreign aid. So today, we're going deep into that history. And also why your taxpayer dollars are figuring into that military assistance. Missy discusses with my colleague, Alahi Azadi, what it all reveals about America's foreign policy agenda. Then... And now.
2: I do want to learn more about the history and the context of USAID to Israel, but I want to start first with what that aid looks like in this moment. You know, Biden has pledged this unqualified support to Israel and its goal of taking down Hamas. What does that support translate into in terms of actual material items?
1: Like, what does that look like? So President Biden is requesting $14.3 billion in additional military assistance or additional assistance, which is mostly military for Israel. That request for Israel is part of a much larger $106 billion package that includes not only assistance to Israel, but also $60 billion in assistance to Ukraine. And then other funds for immigration, China, and and other items. And so as part of that package, he's asking for $14 billion in military assistance to Israel. To your question, most of this $14 billion that's being requested for Israel would not go to the Israeli government directly, but would be for replenishing American military stocks that either have been given to Israel or will be given to Israel. And um, remember, in recent days, the Biden administration has shipped to Israel things like precision-guided munitions, small-diameter bombs, artillery ammunition, So what they're asking for is $14 billion to replenish American stocks. Then they're also going to spend some money on providing interceptors, missile defense interceptors, for Israel to help it defend its cities and towns against rockets or missile fire, and some additional money that would be given to Israel for it to then make weapons purchases. So Biden has made this request for Israel as part of this larger $106 billion package that has been proposed, including the aid to Israel, to Ukraine, for the border, and some other issues. Now that the House of Representatives has a speaker and is functional again, they, in theory, could act on this request that Biden has made. But there are some other things happening that could complicate things for the White House. Yeah,
2: I'm curious about the ways this is complicated for the White House, how they're even trying to get this aid. Are there alternatives to this aid package, the way that the White House has proposed it, that people in Congress are proposing?
1: Sure. So, Republicans in the House have made their own counterproposal. And instead of proceeding with this giant package that Biden has put forward, they are proposing doing the $14 billion in Israel aid separately as a standalone bill. They're saying, let's leave Ukraine aid for another moment. This is an emergency for Israel. It's a controversial approach. Just the fact of setting aside the the aid for Ukraine, which many Republicans in Congress see as also urgent— is creating some divisions within the Republican Party and also opposition from the Democrats. So it looks unlikely that the Senate will support this approach. But the fact that you have this brand new speaker who has these competing priorities um, and the need to manage a really unruly House Republican constituency adds to the concerns and the questions about when this is going to become a reality for Israel.
2: Is the U.S. also committed to sending direct aid to Gaza? And what form would that take?
1: Yeah, well, the Biden administration likes to point out that the United States um, has been the largest provider of support even before this conflict to U.N. efforts to support Palestinian refugees. And Biden, when he made his visit to Israel, he announced an additional $100 million in humanitarian aid to Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza
2: Missy, what does that humanitarian aid look like? Like, what is that buying, that $100
1: million? Do we know? The administration said that that would go through UN agencies and um NGOs. So, you know, you have to assume it includes things like water, medical supplies, you know, I think it includes some hygiene kits and things like that. And food, of course, you know, the, the World Food Program has really been sounding the alarm about the potential for starvation. And, you know, the the water situation is quite bad. Um, you know, the United States has been very careful in, in uh, navigating the question of um, fuel and whether or not fuel will be allowed into Gaza. You know,
2: as of right now, more than 8,700 people in Gaza have been killed in this conflict. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. But many more lives are expected to be lost during this new phase of Israel's ground offensive there. Has the Biden administration tried to caveat the aid it's supplying to Israel or otherwise done anything to ensure that the money that it's supplying isn't, you know, being used to purchase weapons that are then used to harm civilians? Or is that even possible?
1: What we've seen over the course of weeks since the attacks has been an increasingly vocal position from the Biden administration in encouraging Israel to adhere to the laws of war and international humanitarian law in its response. And that has been an increasingly prominent feature of the remarks that we've heard in public. And so we have to assume, um, I would assume, that in private that that's part of the conversation. But in terms of caveating the military assistance that is being provided now and could be provided if this package is approved, not explicitly, there's no specific conditions that I'm aware of that would be attached to this aid. Other than requirements that are attached to all American military aid to partners, and those are various. There are some requirements that are rooted in uh, U.S. um, law. There are some that are rooted in international law, um, and some are just sort of policy guidance. So, The United States is supposed to be very careful about providing military aid and thinking about whether or not the countries that it's supplying arms with are complying with international criminal law, international humanitarian law. There's also a new conventional arms transfer policy that the Biden administration has passed in the last year. And this was supposed to be sort of President Biden's attempt to reestablish human rights and um, protection of civilians as um, a cornerstone of the American approach to foreign military sales and weapon sales overseas. And so they um, wrote up this new policy that sort of seeks to enshrine that, not as the sole criteria, but as. A criteria, Hmm. um, and that's something that um, is supposed to guide um, decisions about this. So there's nothing specific to this aid uh, to Israel that would tie Israel's hands. That would tie Israel's hands, but except for the conditions that would, you know, at least in theory, tie any country's hands if they're purchasing or receiving American military aid. That's
2: interesting to me because right now,
1: the at least the critics of this aid
2: are raising questions as to whether Israel is. You know, observing international law, for instance, an evacuation order and ordering this mass evacuation previously and, and other instances. And part of the issue here is that Gaza is such a densely populated area that any sort of strike there, it seems, would, you know, inevitably kill
1: civilians. So I just wonder in this moment how to contend with that. What the Biden administration is saying is that they expect Israel to comply with international laws, uh, the laws of war, international humanitarian law, and they've pointed to Israel's status as democracy as something that should provide confidence that it will do so. Now, clearly, there's a lot of external questioning that's happening um, about whether or not Israel is. You know, we've heard that very clearly even from the secretary-general of the United Nations in recent days. Protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the South, where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the South itself. I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. The Biden administration is not making any sort of public assessment at this point. What we heard from Secretary of State Tony Blinken recently was that there would be Plenty of time, as he said, to make assessments about the conduct of the war in the future. And it's trying to sort of signal publicly that this is important. You know, we've heard President Biden talk about, you know, civilian life and um, the importance of avoiding unnecessary loss of life. But at the same time, the Biden administration continues to stand beside Israel's right to respond to the Hamas attacks.
2: Yeah, it's just interesting to think about because it's signaling, okay, we're going to assess to make sure that you're following these norms. But by that point, the deed will have been done. So I, I just, part of this is the nature of war, it sounds like, right? Right.
1: Well, there's. I mean, there is internal criticism of that stance. Um, clearly, you know, we've seen the resignation of one State Department employee who worked on foreign military assistance. Um, we saw Josh Paul, who was somebody who worked on um, congressional public affairs in the State Department, resigned recently, and he cited what you know he described as insufficient debate internally about the U.S. and in compliance with existing guidance and and norms and law and all of that. Uh, and there clearly is a lot of concern um, among other officials that we've heard about. But, you know, I mean, there is strong support in Congress for this um, military aid, and it's very unified. So after the um, House of Representatives finally um, selected a new speaker, the first thing that happened was they passed this resolution in support of Israel, and it passed overwhelmingly 412 to 10. And, you know, that really speaks to the strong bipartisan backing for Israel. You, you don't see those kind of numbers for virtually anything these days. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that Clearly, there's a, a, a very small minority of people who are willing to, um, who, you know, oppose this and are willing to vote against it. And so the outlook for military aid to Israel is, is very strong. Like there's no question about no, that. No, there's really no question about it. Because of the level of bipartisan support for Israel, I think it's more just a question of timing and tactics in terms of finding the right legislative vehicle for passing this aid to Ukraine, to Israel, and whether or not the Biden administration will succeed in attaching other priorities, including Ukraine and the border, to the, the, the support to Israel, or whether or not the Republicans in, in the House, at least, will succeed in putting this forward separately.
0: After the break, we dive into why the US has historically been so invested in Israel. We'll be right back.
2: Missy, let's back up. Before this most recent conflict, between Israel and Hamas erupted, how much aid does Israel usually receive from the U.S., and where does that money generally go?
1: So Israel is the largest cumulative recipient of American aid since World War II.
2: That can be a little surprising because if we just step back and think about it, it's a small country, right?
1: It's a small country, but, you know, there have been a number of different principles that have been espoused by administrations of different parties over the decades. And that, you know, include, you know, the American interest in Israeli security, Israel status as a democracy in the Middle East, um, and also sort of historic ties that go back to the founding of Israel in 1948. And so the total aid is now about $158 one hundred and fifty eight billion that 's before this conflict, and the vehicle for for that assistance is this series of ten year memoranda of understanding. These MOUs that are passed every ten years and they lay out a certain amount of money that is going to be divvied up over those ten years and it, it currently comes out to about three point three billion dollars um, each year, mm-hmm. plus some missile defense money. And so Congress still has to go and authorize that money every year, but there's never really any question about that, and and they get it. There's an additional thing I think it's important to mention when it comes to uh, U.S. assistance to Israel, which is mostly military assistance. There's also something called the qualitative military edge, and that is the sort of um, one of the things that underpins U.S. assistance to Israel— and that has been sort of this foundational principle where the United States is supposed to help guarantee that Israel has a qualitative advantage over other militaries in the region. So why, why is that? What's the thinking there? The, the rationale is um, or the objective is to assure that they have the ability to defend themselves because, you know, they're a small country and they're surrounded by countries that, you know, have to have these adversarial relations with and they've had wars with in the past. And so not only is that this sort of principle that guides the kind of weapons that are provided, it's now legislated and it allows them to get certain kinds of military systems like the F-35 fighter jet before other countries do, and then when the United States provides weapons to other countries in the Middle East, sometimes they will do these offsets where they'll give Israel certain mm. kinds of other things, or maybe they'll give, you know, there there had been a deal to sell F-35s to the United Arab Emirates, but, you know, Israel would continue to have a more sophisticated version of that aircraft than other countries would. And so the goal of this is just to ensure that, you know, Israel, like, you know, like the United States likes to think it has over other countries has this military edge. And
2: that Israel needs this edge because it's in a territory that's so hostile to it. Yes.
1: Israel and, and the United States are tied together very strongly. It, you know, has been a it's not part of NATO, but it is designated as a major non-NATO ally and it has been for uh, many decades. Can you tell me a little bit more about the
2: when and why did this very close relationship form between the United States and Israel?
1: Well, as I said, it sort of goes back um decades to the you know, the founding of the State of Israel. President Truman was apparently you know the first call to um, Israeli leaders minutes after the formation of the the state and that I think just goes to show you know the the strength and the intertwining of of the relationship here the United States also likes to think it has shared security objectives with Israel in the region they both are uh, have a, um, an adversarial relationship with Iran. Um, the United States is trying to close some of the gaps what it has with Israel when it comes to security ties, like, you know, they're strongly supporting normalization between Israel and um, Arab countries in the region, including, you know, the UAE has already happened. They're really hoping that Saudi Arabia will normalize its relations with Israel. And so, you know, the, it has just sort of been intertwined in American security policy, especially in that region since, you know, since the end of the Second World War. Tell me just about how that has sustained
2: over time. You know, how has this been politically popular in the United States? Has that borne out? Have most
1: U.S. presidents on either side really differed all that much? On no, this? you know, successive presidents of both parties who have basically, you know, can agree on nothing, you know, agree that Israel is this bedrock ally for um, U.S. interests, especially in a, in a region that, you know, has had um, more than its share of upheaval and turmoil And violence. Um, The United States identifies with Israel's history. It identifies with Israel's status as a democracy. And so the United States has really made it an article of faith that it's in American interest to support Israel's security, its prosperity, its continued strength as a democracy. And that really has been a constant throughout administrations. You know, there have been ups. And downs. Um there's been a lot of friction over the last few years between the Biden administration and Israel, particularly because of the coalition government of Netanyahu, which you know included some ultra nationalist elements and some of the positions that it has taken. And that has really definitely caused friction. And there's been a lot of criticism about some of its settlement activity. But at the same time, even as we heard that criticism coming from the State Department podium and other parts of the administration, we also heard that the U.S. wasn't at all diminishing its position of strong support for Israel security. Yeah. Um, un- unequ- it's unequivocal. It's unequivocal. And, uh, y- y- you know, it The United States continues to espouse its support for a two-state solution. And there, you know, clearly have been um, different moments where, you know, there have been political disagreements and even sort of personal disagreements between, Mm -hmm. you know, American and Israeli leaders. But um, as you were saying, the constant is just the partnership.
2: Have you seen this, though, as a moment in the United States just domestically among Americans or politicians, however we want to look at it, where there's this like questioning of this steadfast relationship as it's manifested through the aid that's given to Israel. Are people questioning this right now? Like, should we be giving this much money?
1: There are elements of the Democratic Party who are pushing back. And, you know, as the operation continue, I think there's the potential for that um, to become a more significant political challenge for the Biden administration. But right now, you know, I think there remains strong support for this aid. I mean, you have to remember, the United States has been giving $3.3 billion a year. So you're talking about, you know, three years worth of aid that they're proposing but that's still a lot less than the United States has given to Ukraine in the mm. last year of a and a half which now is you know close to fifty billion dollars mm-hmm. so there's some question of um, you know relative support for a foreign country as well and and if you look at the difference between the the base for public support for Israel and and Ukraine it, it's still far broader for Israel
2: mm-hmm. And then looking into the future as you are tracking what happens with this aid proposal, what happens as Israel does get more aid, what are the questions that will be on your mind? What will you be tracking? And will this relationship ever change, you think?
1: I wouldn't anticipate any sort of fundamental decrease in the sort of symbolic support that the United States has for Israel. There have been, you know, some public questions over the years about the use of force. Um, You know, we saw this after the killing of Shireen Abu Akhle, the, you know, American citizen, Palestinian-American journalist who was shot and killed by Israeli troops as she covered a news event. Um, And there are occasional questions by members of Congress about, you know, whether or not there could be um, a different kind of, application of things like the Leahy laws, which require vetting for units that receive American military support related to human rights. But, you know, overwhelmingly, the trajectory continues to be strong support for Israel. I think, you know, politically, there could be more challenge ahead for the Biden administration as they do face more opposition from other parts of the world. You know, there um, there have mm-hmm. been some pretty big confrontations at the United Nations in recent days. Not just from you know some of the normal adversaries of the United States, like you know China and Russia, but also the the global South position is different, and there you know we'll see what happens with European countries. And so the Biden administration um, will have to contend with the potential for a changing global landscape in um, support for Israel. But so far, the United States has appeared very willing, no matter the administration, um, really, to um, weather that because it feels like it's so strongly invested in, in this relationship.
2: Thanks, Missy, for joining us.
0: Thank you. Missy Ryan writes about national security for The Post. She spoke to my colleague, Elahe Izadi. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff and Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Thanks to Andy de Grand Prix. If you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Lillian Cunningham. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.